your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 7. Ezekiel chapter 7. The title this evening is Israel's End is Near. Israel's End is Near. This chapter covers the second of two messages of judgment against the whole land of Israel. That is the destruction of the land. Through chapter 5, Ezekiel's messages had concerned was dealing with just Jerusalem. But now, God's dealing with the whole land of Israel. Jerusalem had been destroy, hadn't been destroyed yet. And though most of the inhabitants had been removed from the land, uh, many people were still there. But the things that had already taken place didn't cause them to turn to God. The nation of Israel was blessed with a gracious God to worship and to love. And they were blessed with a land of milk and honey to enjoy and a holy law to obey. Their love for the Lord and their obedience to His law would be the deciding factor to how much blessing God could entrust them with in the land. And these were the conditions of the covenant. And the Jewish people knew them well. The generation that first entered the land obeyed God's covenants, and so did the following generation. But the third generation provoked the Lord and broke their marriage vows with Him, and they corrupted themselves with idols. They disobeyed His law. They challenged the Lord, their Lord, and they defiled the land. And the Lord wouldn't accept that kind of behavior. So first, he punished them in their land by allowing seven enemy nations to occupy the land and to oppress the people, as written in the book of Judges. But every time God delivered Israel from their persecutors, the Jews would just go right back. In a matter of time, they'd go right back to worshiping idols. So God finally took them away from the land, some by death, others were exiled into Babylon. And it's a sad story. But it reminds us that the Lord is serious about His covenant and our obedience. So let's begin in chapter 7 with verses 1 through 4. Here in these four verses, first four verses, Ezekiel announces Israel's judgment. Chapter 7, verse 1. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel, saying, And you, son of man, thus says the Lord God to the land of Israel, An end, the end has come upon the four corners of the land. Now the end has come upon you, and I will send my anger against you. I will judge you according to your ways, and I will repay you for all your abominations. My eye will not spare you, nor will I have pity, but I will repay your ways, and your abominations will be in your midst. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. So Ezekiel here is passing on to the people of Israel what God has to say. And the first message given of the two was back in verse six, uh, chapter 6. And chapter 6 and chapter 1 here of chapter 7 opened with the same words. Judgment was going to come on that land, <clears throat> including those living in the land. The land of Israel and the nation Israel are always considered together in the word of God. A new part is added to Ezekiel's prophecy in this message. This is now the prophecy of the final destruction of the land and of Jerusalem. 
The final exile will take place and Jerusalem will be destroyed. God says to Israel, I'm going to judge you according to your ways. In other words, I'm going to judge you according to all your disgusting sins for all the things that you did. So the judgment or the punishment will fit the crime because he's going to judge them according to their sins. And we need to ask ourselves, how serious is it to say, I'm a Christian and yet be a phony? How serious is it to go to church and not be saved? And that's the main point here this evening in the study. This is the nuts and bolts of Christianity. The concern is people going to church that aren't truly saved. And that's the problem today that relates to what Ezekiel is talking about here. Ezekiel says that this man's responsibility, that is this man who says he's saved, it's his, his responsibility is great because he's heard the word of God and he's turned his back on it. And the more that he hears, the greater his responsibility becomes. Ezekiel said in verses 2 and 3, an end, the end has come upon you. And he talked about like it's already happened. This is a way of saying that absolutely, positively, there is no doubt it is going to happen. The judgment is going to come. The end that Ezekiel said was coming with such certainty, he says was going to come upon the four corners of the land. This means on the whole land, suggesting that no city would escape God's judgment. God promised that he would punish the whole nation because of their detestable sins. And with the guilt came the idea of punishment that was deserved and repaid. Ezekiel didn't see any signs of true repentance in the people. So they would continue in their sins until they were destroyed by judgment. We have an example of this in Romans chapter 1, verses 19 through 28. Let me read it to you. And then again from the New Living Translation. They know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, so they have no excuse for not knowing God. Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. And as a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. And instead of worshiping the glorious, ever-living God, they worshiped idols, made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. So God abandoned them or gave them up to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. As a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. They traded the truth about God for a lie. So they worshiped and served the things God created instead of the creator himself who is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. That is why God abandoned them, gave them up to their shameful desires. Since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God, he abandoned them. Again, gave them up to their foolish thinking and let them do things that should have never been done. Three times God said he gave them up. You see, God doesn't bless obedience. He lets go. 
He says, okay, if you don't want to repent, you don't want to follow me, you don't want to obey my word, go. Go do your own thing. That's the worst judgment that God could ever bring upon us is to let us do whatever we want to do. Again, the purpose for this judgment was to bring a new knowledge of God. He says in verse 4, Then you shall know that I am the Lord. God never judges arbitrarily. He never judges on a whim. He never just randomly judges us or anybody. He doesn't do it just for fun. God is a God of justice, a God of fairness. And he brought judgment against Judah to bring about a repentant heart and to open the way for more grace and more of his mercy. Verses 5 through 9 now calls for judgment. Verse 5, thus says the Lord God, a disaster, a singular disaster, behold, it has come. An end has come. The end has come. It has dawned for you. Behold, it has come. Doom has come to you, you who dwell in the land. The time has come. A day of trouble is near and not of rejoicing in the mountains. Now upon you I will soon pour out my fury and, my, and spend my anger upon you. I will judge you according to your ways and I will repay you for all your abominations. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. I will repay you according to your ways, and your abominations will be in your midst, and then you shall know that I am the Lord who strikes. So Ezekiel's announcement of the sure judgment continues. This particular disaster in verse 5, this unheard of disaster, meant that this would be a judgment like no other. It would be beyond compare. And this was no doubt referring to the destruction of the temple that the Jews thought was totally indestructible. The words in verse 2, notice, an end, the end has come. It's repeated in verse 6 to stress the seriousness of God's judgment that was coming. The evil or judgment is pictured like a hungry animal waking up, starving, ready to eat, ready to stalk its prey. Verse 6 says, it has dawned for you. This judgment has dawned for you. In other words, it's, 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 it's awake now and it's ready to come and ready to, to prey upon you. The word disaster in verse 5 is sometimes translated evil. But it's often associated with judgment and doesn't necessarily carry the idea of moral evil, but rather of calamity, misfortune, and discomfort. The word doom is mentioned in verse 7 and verse 10. Results, it results in the loss of rejoicing in the mountains, as it says in verse 7. In those high places, there will be no more rejoicing where they were worshiping their false idols. At those high places where the fertility rituals and harvest celebrations or joy took place, there would be no, no, uh, no joy there. There would now be cries of suffering and pain. And verses 8 and 9 repeat the ideas spoken Uh, earlier in verses 3 and 4. The fruit of judgment was now ripe and it was ready to fall. Because this idea was repeated several times without any response from the people. They, They didn't respond whatsoever. It confirms the deadening power of sin. You know, it's scary how easily messages of judgment are forgotten. These messages have to be constantly brought to our remembrance, brought to our mind. 
And God stressed the saving purpose of judgment at the close of this section with the words, again in verse 9, Then you shall know that I am the Lord who strikes. Judgment often renews our interest in spiritual things. It often brings us back to spiritual things. The sad thing is that this usually happens after the judgment falls on a nation or an individual. Tragedy usually wakes people up to now an interest in God or getting back to God. And verses 4 through 9 is a great passage of Scripture. But it's sad that not many Christians pay much attention to it just because you know, they say, well, you know, this was way back in the ancient days. The Old Testament doesn't apply to us today. But look carefully at what Ezekiel is saying here. You know, what Ezekiel is saying here, you know, it's pretty mild compared to what the Apostle John said in the book of Revelation. And to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 25. Ezekiel's words here compared to a lot of the passages in the New Testament, hey, they're kind of lightweight. The God of the New Testament is the same person as the God of the Old Testament, and he will punish sin in any age. Many people want to see God set aside, you know, in general, because they can't explain things like why the Holocaust was allowed or why 9-11 happened. I'm just saying that it ought to be a warning to the church of God today. Will God judge? Yes, he will. That's why Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.11, Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. A lot of people are playing church today, making it kind of a, a cheap kind of a thing. You know, they speak of their commitment and their devotion, but don't really have a full commitment to Jesus Christ. And that's the sad thing about the church today. Our problem isn't that we don't have enough church members. The problem is we have too many who aren't truly committed to Jesus Christ. One dead church member hurts the cause of Christ more than 20 obvious blaspheming atheists. We expect that from atheists, but not one who claims to be a Christian. Ezekiel's message was not popular in his day, and it's not popular today. Verses 10 through 13, now we see the certainty of the judgment. Verse 10. <clears throat> behold the day. Behold it has come. Doom has gone out. The rod has blossomed. Price, a pride has budded. Violence has risen up into a rod of wickedness. None of them shall remain. None of their multitude. None of them. Nor shall there be wailing for them. The time has come. The day draws near. For the seller shall not return what has been sold, though he may still be alive. For the vision concerns the whole multitude, and it shall not turn back. No one will strengthen himself who lives in iniquity. So after Ezekiel announces that the end had come, in verses 1 through 4, and he stressed the extraordinary nature of this judgment, Ezekiel points out now that the judgment coming was permanent, it was predestined, and it couldn't be stopped. God was going to use the Babylonians as the rod of his anger or the tool or the instrument of his anger to bring judgment on Israel. He says in verse 11, uh, 10 and 11 here, the rod had blossomed, taking an image from nature. God had been very patient as his people disobeyed his law <clears throat> and disobeyed his prophets. 
But now their sins were fully ripened. And the nation would have to reap what they sowed. In their pride, in their self-sufficiency, in their self-confidence, they had developed a false confidence that the Lord would never let His people be exiled or let His temple be destroyed. But their sin had now ripened. And both of those things were now about to happen. They were going to be exiled and the temple destroyed. Isaiah had the same picture in mind when he described the Assyrian invasion uh, uh, of the land in Isaiah 10.5. Only only, uh, uh, he saw, as Isaiah saw, the invaders as the rod in his hand. So it's the picture that Ezekiel had in mind. Then the rod is King Nebuchadnezzar and, and the blossom, the word blossom means that the time was right for God to punish his people. Violence in the land had grown into a rod of wickedness, and the people's sins would find them out. Buying and selling, as it mentions in verse 12, like rejoicing and grieving, suggests business as usual, the the social and personal life. You know, they were buying, they were selling, they were rejoicing, they were grieving, just, you know, business as usual, social and personal life. Ezekiel announced that all of those normal daily things were going to come to a stop. Business as usual was going to come to a stop. And God's wrath wiped away all the usual necessities of human life that, that you know, made their life stable. And the second picture is taken from the business world in verses 12 through 13 with the Jewish year of Jubilee as their background. Nothing of value would be left because of the captivity, property, and material possessions were worthless. Possessions would be taken away and property owners would be taken out of their land and carried off to Babylon. Ezekiel exhorted them in verse 12, let not the buyer rejoice nor the, nor the seller mourn. The buyer who normally rejoiced over a good business deal, hey, he said, he, he said you shouldn't be happy because you're not going to be able to keep the land that you had bought. And someone forced to sell his land shouldn't grieve because he would have lost it anyway. When land was sold in Israel, the transaction was always temporary. And every 50 years, in the years of Jubilee, during the year of the Jubilee, the property was returned to its original owner. But because of God's coming judgment, that would prevent the original owners from reclaiming their properties and they would be in exile along with the buyers. And this vision of the coming judgment, verse 13 says, will not be turned back. It won't be stopped. And there wasn't anything that a man could do to hinder God from carrying out his plan. Again, verse 13 reads, even if the merchants survive, they will never return to their business. Because what God has said applies to everyone. And it won't be changed. Not one person whose life is twisted by sin will ever recover If the Jews had obeyed God's law, the slaves would have been freed and the ownership of the land would have been protected. But now the surviving Jews would be enslaved and their land would be taken from them because the people had not obeyed the laws concerning the Sabbath for the land. So because they didn't obey the the Sabbath for the land, the Lord took the land from them until all of those Sabbaths were fulfilled. 
material things and worldliness won't be of any value in a time of judgment. Those things that, that we consider so important during judgment won't be of any value. We could care less about them at that time. Uncontrolled materialism and worldliness that separates us from God, it tends to only make His judgment worse. What we selfishly keep for ourselves, we eventually lose. But what we give to the Lord, hey, we keep forever. Then in verses 14 through 18, destruction is announced. Verse 14. They have blown the trumpet and made everyone ready. But no one goes to battle, for my wrath is on all of their multitude. The sword is outside, and the pestilence and famine within. Whoever is in the field will die by the sword, and whoever is in the city, famine and pestilence will devour him. Those who survive will escape and be on the mountains, like doves of the valleys, all of them mourning, each for his iniquity. Every hand will be feeble, and every knee will be as weak as water. They will also be girded with sackcloth. Horror will cover them. Shame will be on every side, baldness on all of their heads. So the end of the message points out three things to show the total destruction of the nation of Israel. The first thing is the coming of the invading army in verses 14 through 18. The alarm would be given, but trying to defend themselves would be useless because just knowing that the invasion had started, it would basically paralyze them. It would terrorize them so bad that they would stop dead in their tracks, according to verse 14. And the three hardships of war mentioned before were the sword, plague, and famine. Back in Ezekiel chapter 5, verse 12, and 6, 11, and 12. The whole nation would be affected by these three things. And Ezekiel says the people would respond, notice, like doves mourning in the valleys, in verse 16. Frightened and alone in the mountains. They'd also look for hiding places far away to get away from the invading armies. They'd be overwhelmed by what was taking place. They'd be overwhelmed with terror. And the suffering and the shame brought upon them was because of their sins. He says in verse 17, their hands will hang limp, their knees weak as water. And this describes a total loss of their strength and their ability to resist this invading army. They would be wearing sackcloth and shave their heads. These were the usual ways of mourning and and proper behavior for circumstances of the judgment, according to verse 18. But these weren't signs of mourning uh, resulting from from true repentance. Now, they didn't put on the sackcloth and shave their heads as signs of repentance, as the result of repentance. But it was mourning over the terrible destruction, famine, and plague that, that resulted from the destruction. In other words, the people weren't sorry for their sin as much as they were sorry that they were having to deal with the discomforts and the horrors of the invasion. They weren't grieving and, and mourning because of the, uh, uh, for the consequences of their sin. In Genesis chapter 4, verse 11 and 12, remember when, when Cain killed Abel and, 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 and God you know, cursed the ground and cursed Abel for what he had done? In Genesis 4, 11 and 12, God said to, Abel, to, to Cain, So you will be cursed from this ground. 
And now when you work the soil, the ground will not help your plants grow. You will not have a home in this land. You will wander from place to place. So that was the judgment against Cain for killing Abel. Listen to what Cain said to God. My punishment is too great for me to bear. You have banished me from the land and from your presence. You have made me a homeless wanderer, and anyone who finds me will kill me. Cain never said anything about, Lord, I'm sorry for my sin. Cain never repented for his sins. His words only showed his regret. Cain didn't say, oh, Lord, my guilt for my sin is more than I can bear. I'm sorry that I grieved you because of my sin. Cain was only concerned about his punishment. He wasn't concerned about his character. Cain was more concerned about the consequences of his sin than the sin that grieved the heart of God. And then verses 19 through 22, we see the uselessness of material resources. Verse 19, they will, notice, they will throw their silver into the streets and their gold will be like refuse, like trash. Their silver and their gold will not be able to deliver them in the day of the wrath of the Lord. They will not satisfy their souls nor fill their stomachs because it, notice their gold and silver, became their stumbling block of iniquity. As for the beauty of his ornaments, he said it in majesty, but they, made from it, uh, but they made from it the images of their abominations, their detestable things. Therefore, I have made it like refuse to them. I will give it as plunder into the hands of strangers and to the wicked of the earth as spoil, and they shall defile it, and I will turn my face from them, and they will defile my secret place, for robbers shall enter it and defile it. The people found out how useless their, their stuff, their belongings, their possessions, their material, materialism was that they were, that they were uh, once they were staring destruction in the face. Their silver and their gold was worthless for trying to turn away God's judgment in verse 19. People were throwing away their valuables. And during the final years of the kingdom of Judah, the rich were getting richer and the poor were getting poorer, with the rich robbing the poor without any help from the courts. The prophets came down hard against this evil, but the leaders wouldn't listen. The refugees couldn't carry their wealth as they were running from Jerusalem, so they treated it like garbage. They took their gold, their silver, and all their precious stuff, and it says they threw it into the streets. It just weighed them down. You can't eat money. And what good is money when there's no food to buy in the city? And not only that, there wouldn't be any places to buy any supplies as the people were running off to the mountains. Their gold and silver only weighed them down. And their idols, they were even more worthless. In a time of crisis, we learn real fast what's valuable and what's really important in life. The lust for wealth enticed the people to sin. And their sins brought about the judgment. The Babylonian soldiers took the wealth of the Jews as their plunder, as their reward, along with their expensive idols. This was God's payment, you could say, to Babylon for their services in chastening Israel. 
And then in verses 23 through 27, now we have the fall of Jerusalem announced. Look at verse 23. Make a chain, for the land is filled with crimes of blood, and the city is full of violence. Therefore I will bring the worst of the Gentiles, and they will possess their houses, and I will cause the pomp of the strong to cease, and their holy places shall be defiled. Destruction comes. They will seek peace, but there shall be none. Disaster will come upon disaster, and rumor will be upon rumor. Then they will seek a vision from a prophet, but the law will perish from the priest and counsel from the elders. The king will mourn, the prince will be clothed with desolation, and the hands of the common people will tremble. And I will do to them according to their way, and according to what they deserve, I will judge them. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. Ezekiel described the violent takeover of the city. And those living in it were taken captive. Verse 23, when it says, uh, make a chain. Chains were, you know, were a sign of captivity. There wouldn't be any help from the religious leaders. There wouldn't be any help from the priests or the prophets. And the holy temple would be defiled and it would be destroyed. The Jews had depended upon the temple to save them because they thought for sure that God wouldn't let his beautiful house be ruined by pagan soldiers. Remember, God's house is a place where he meets with us. Once we're gone, it's, it's, it's nothing to him in the sense of value. It's wood, hay, and stubble. But the Jews, like a lot of people think, oh, you know, the, the house of God is, you know, it, it's holy and it's, and it's I got protection there. Hey, the only thing about the, the church of God is it's holy when God's people are in it. God said, I'll meet you there. But God said in Jeremiah 7, 1 through 5, don't be fooled by those who promise you safety just because the Lord's temple is there. They chant, the temple is here, the temple is here. But Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 7, 11, that, hey, it had become a den of thieves. And the Lord was no longer pleased with the sacrifices that the people were offering in it. As a matter of fact, in Isaiah 1, 11 through 20, God says, well, what makes you think I want your sacrifices? He told him, hey, I'm sick of your burnt offerings of rams and, and, and the fat of fattened cattle. He says, I don't get any pleasure from the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. He says, stop bringing me your meaningless gifts. That's pretty heavy. God would allow pagans to pollute his treasured place. The priests couldn't, the priests couldn't encourage them from the word of God. Why? Because the people had broken the covenant. That means now they were outside the place of blessing. The false prophets could see no vision because they had rejected the truth. Not only would there be, uh, be religious chaos, but the political system would fall apart too. That's what it says in Ezekiel 7, 27. His, now, he talks about the king and the priest. Who are the king and the prince? Ezekiel usually used the word prince to refer to Zedekiah. Ezekiel 12, 10. 12 and Ezekiel 21, 25, never giving him the title king. The only Israelite Ezekiel called king was Jehoiachin in captivity in Babylon, Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 2. King Jehoiachin was already in captivity mourning Jerusalem's certain, uh, 
a certain fall. While Prince Zedekiah was in Jerusalem in despair over his trouble. And as a result, the people were trembling in fear at their uncertain fate. Didn't know what was going to happen to them. So the leadership in Judah started to fall apart when the kings refused to listen to Jeremiah's messages from the Lord, warning them to surrender to Babylon. And if they did, it would save the city and it would save the temple. Whenever leaders of the Jewish nation depended on politics and their partnerships with other nations rather than the sure word of God, hey, it gradually led to compromise and to confusion. Judah was looking to make a partnership with Egypt and they tried to bargain for peace. But the Lord had decided that his people should be chastened and no power on earth can overrule the sovereign will of God. The psalmist said in Psalm 33, 10 and 11, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He makes the plans of the peoples of no effect. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. So in closing, by judging Judah in accordance with the standards and the punishments declared to them from the beginning, very beginning, in the Mosaic Covenant, the Lord would cause them to recognize him and to show them, I am different from the gods of the nations. I'm a God not to be messed with. I'm a God not to be mocked or ignored. I'm a God that's not to be taken for granted, but obeyed and trusted with all of your soul, heart, and mind. Father, we thank you so much for your word, Lord. And Father, as this chapter applied to the end of the nation of Israel here, the judgment that came upon them, Lord, God, it also, the principles apply to us today, Father, to a nation and to a people of that nation, God. And Lord, we are called to, to obey the word of God and not challenge the word of God. We are called to submit to the ways of God, to the purposes of God and the will of God. So Lord, help us to see you, to stay focused, to keep our eyes on you, Lord. Lord, we know that one day judgment is coming. Father, your word says so. And we know, God, that your word comes to pass, that your word is true. So, Lord, may we continue to be looking up because our redemption draws nigh, Father. And, Lord, it's, it's, it's high time that, that we don't play church, that we just don't go to church, that we recognize we are the church. And so, Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace and your tender mercies, Lord. And, Father, we do ask that you would just... <clears throat> Minister to us <clears throat> in these last days, in these end times, God, as we see the world around us, God, and all the things that, that your word has spoken about, God, we see them coming to pass, God. The signs are here. So, God, help us to just, again, stay focused, Lord, to be looking at you, the author and the finisher of our faith. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Sunday morning.